Well, good morning, everyone. So glad you're here. Good to be with you. I know there are folks this time of year who are looking for a church home. I want you to know that we pray for you. We pray that you might find that place. And if the Lord wills, that it would be here. If not here, then somewhere. That you would plug into a church body that you can feel connected to and grow in your faith. And so, so important. So we're glad you're here. Uh, as many of you know, we've been working through a series this summer looking at the questions that Jesus asked. And you'll remember in the very beginning we said that uh, questions were a powerful tool for learning. And we've seen how Jesus has employed that tool over and over again. So- scholars suggest that there's over 300 questions in the Gospels. I didn't go and count those to make sure they were right, but I trust that it's pretty close. But it's important to understand as we think about that, that Jesus didn't ask questions to learn something about others. Instead, Jesus asked questions in order for others to learn something about him. Because questions make us think. They cause us to reflect. They demand a response. And our response reveals what's in our heart. And that's what Jesus wants us to see. See, he already knows what's there. (laughs) He wants us to know what's there. And ultimately, he wants us to discover that he is the answer to what our hearts long for most. Just think about some of the questions that we've walked through this summer. Like the question Jesus asked when he said to the man, do you want to be healed? You remember, this is a man who was lame for over 38 years, so the answer seems obvious, right? Of course he wants to be healed. But instead of saying yes, you'll remember the man gave a list of excuses as to why it simply would not be possible. The man didn't say yes because he did not believe yes was an option. But Jesus brought hope into that hopeless situation. He wanted the man to know that he was the yes that his heart longed for. Or think about the question that Jesus asked Andrew and John when he said, what do you want? Remember, Andrew and John were disciples of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And so Andrew and John wanted to find out if that was true. So they followed him out of curiosity. But Jesus, by asking that question, wants them to consider, is that what they need? See, the answer to what do you want reveals what they need. And Jesus wants them to learn that they need him. It's the same purpose behind the question, who do you say that I am? Forget what everybody else says. What's most important is what you believe. You have to make your faith your own. So who do you say that I am? You see, only then can what you believe impact how you live. That's why Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and then do not do what I say? He understands that obedience is the evidence of discipleship. So look at your heart. Be honest. What do you see? Does the word of God truly guide your life or do you simply take it under advisement when you're going through a crisis? Your answer reveals who's ultimately in control. 
See, questions often reveal answers that we didn't know we were looking for. They often expose realities we try to hide. They get to the heart of the matter, and that's the point. That's where Jesus wants us to go, because only then can we discover that he is the answer that our hearts long for most. This morning, Jesus is going to ask the question, why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? It's an important question. It's a question, as we'll see, that's covered with gentleness. Really, in that question is an invitation. An invitation to grow in our faith. To trust in Him. To find that He is faithful. Jesus wants to see that all that He has promised has been fulfilled. And fulfilled promises remove doubts. That's a promise. Before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we live in a world that's full of doubts. And those doubts creep into our own hearts. We question. We're confused. We wonder sometimes where the answer to the difficult issues we face might be found. Lord, I pray that we find them this morning that we find them when we open your word and look at your truth and see that it's what our heart is longing for. I pray ultimately that we find our answer in you, that you bring hope into our hopeless situations. (laughs) And you are enough. Guide us and direct us as we open your word this morning, filled with your promises. May it remove our doubts. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. We're going to begin in verse 1. So if you'll follow along with me, uh, we're going to look at what takes place uh, at the tomb. Luke chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, they being the women. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. As you recall, Jesus was crucified in the closing hours of the Sabbath. You'll remember that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus pulled Jesus' dead body from the cross and laid it in a borrowed tomb. And because of those Sabbath restrictions, they weren't able to anoint the body as they normally would. So the women come on this now the third day to do what was customary, to anoint the body with spices. But when they arrive, they find that the stone that was used to cover the opening of that tomb had been rolled away. It's important for us to understand that 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 stone had been rolled away not because It needed to be rolled away in order for Jesus to get out. It was rolled away in order for us to see that he wasn't there. And that's what the angels would go on to explain. Look at verse 4. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. I want to pause here because 
we've just encountered yet another one of the questions in the Gospels. The angels seek to comfort the women by asking them a question. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? See, the, the women were there to anoint a dead body. They were doing what was customary in that culture. It was the respectful thing to do for the dead. But the implication of the question being asked seems to suggest that Jesus is alive. And that's what they will go on to say. Look at verse 6. He's not here because he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. These women were worried. The Gospel of John says that when they saw this empty tomb, they immediately assumed that the body had been stolen, that the grave had been robbed. Verse 4 in our passage says that they were perplexed. That word in the original language literally means they began to doubt. They started to question everything they believed. They started to doubt their convictions about Jesus, the miracles they saw, the messages he taught. Was it true? I mean, even if it was, without a body, who's ever going to believe that it ever existed if he's gone? Well, they're about to learn that fulfilled promises remove doubts. The angels remind the women of what Jesus said. Now, you'll remember one of those things that Jesus said in one of the questions that Jesus asked the disciples when he said, who do you say that I am? The very familiar response from Peter, he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, the eternal God. He eternally exists. He never dies. That's who you are. When the women remembered his words, their doubts began to disappear. You remember what Jesus said in response to Peter's confession. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. It says in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 16, From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And be raised up on the third day. So following Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus affirms his confession as true. And then gives them the unexpected news of things that will soon take place. He tells them exactly what's going to happen. And we know that these women have heard this very same story. And so compare what Jesus just said to what the angel said in verse 6. He's not here. He is remember. Remember, he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee. And this is what he said. That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. When the women remembered the words of Christ, their doubts were removed. In fact, they couldn't wait to tell the disciples 
when they understood that Christ had risen just as he had promised, they were filled with hope. And that's what promises fulfilled do. They remove doubts and they fill you with hope. And so they go to tell the disciples the good news that Jesus has in fact risen, but it was even hard for them to get their head around. Look at verse 10. Now, they were married. This is talking about the women. They were Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary the mother of James. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles, and these words appeared to them as as nonsense. They would not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. And he saw the linen only, nobody. And he went away to his house, marveling at what had taken place. As we know from the other Gospels, when Peter and John heard the news that the women were telling the disciples, they immediately raced, literally raced to the tomb. When John arrives, he looks in and sees that there's nothing but linen that Jesus had been buried in, but no body. And the gospel tells us that when he saw, immediately he believed. He knew the answer. The passage here tells us that Peter walked away, going to his house, marveling at what had taken place. It's as if he's still trying to get his head around what just happened. But he's not the only one. Look at how the story continues in verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all these things which had taken place. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene who was the prophet, mighty indeed in word and sight of God, and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to a sentence of death. They crucified him. But we were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. And Indeed, besides this, it is the third day since these things have happened. But some women among us have amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find the body. They came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who were said, said to one another that, that he's alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had said. But the him we did not see. Cleopas and somebody else, I think this is Cleopas and his wife. Because we know that those two were there at the foot of the cross during the crucifixion. They're trying to make sense, like Peter of all that has taken place. They're on their way to a place called Emmaus. And this stranger comes along and begins to listen in on their conversation. It was Jesus. But the scripture tells us that 
their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. I believe God wanted them to understand something in their heart before they could see Jesus with their eyes. Because what they would learn from this conversation would be important information for the disciples. So Jesus steps in innocently and listens in on their discussion as if this was new information to him. (laughs) They stop dead in their tracks and basically say, have you been hiding under a rock? I mean, really, you may be the only person in this whole area that has not heard of what's been going on in Jerusalem. If, if anybody says that there's no humor in the Bible, they haven't read it because this is really a very humorous encounter. Jesus steps into this conversation, asks about what's going on, and they just stop dead in their tracks. And Are you kidding me? You've got to be the only one who hasn't heard what's happening. Jesus innocently says, really, tell me more. <laughs> and so they do. They go all the way back to the beginning. They say, well, there's this guy. His name was Jesus. He was from this little town in Galilee called Nazareth. I know, I know, nothing ever good comes from Nazareth. But I'm telling you, this guy was something else. Because when he taught, he taught with authority. He made the word of God come to life. He had power over sickness and disease. He was like the prophets of old. Even the demons obeyed. The miracles that he performed are known all throughout this land. Don't take my word for it. Ask anybody. They'll tell you. And yet, despite all the good that he was trying to do, the religious leaders put him to death. They had him crucified. They killed him in order to keep the peace. You see, they thought Jesus would cause the Romans to turn on us. We thought Jesus had come to set us free. And even though he's been dead for three days, would you believe? Would you believe that there's actually people saying that he's alive? Does that make sense? I mean, there's all kinds of rumors about an empty tomb, a missing body, angelic visits. I mean, we are so confused. We cannot get our head around what's going on. Now look at verse 25. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his own glory. And beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of Scripture. When Doug McAlpine and I visited this week, he said, now that's a sermon I would have loved to have heard. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? Beginning with Moses, Jesus goes on to describe how all of Scripture points to him. Now, he, like Moses, came with putting the power of God on display. Power over sickness and disease and nature. Like Moses, Jesus was on a rescue mission. He was leading his people out of slavery into a land of promise. He was a king, like David. King of righteousness. A king of kings. 
Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth and he's the life. He is the answer to what our hearts long for most. You see, these two on the road to Emmaus must have known this to be true, even as Jesus was speaking these words, because it tells us that their hearts burned within them. Look at verse 32. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? While he was <coughs> explaining the scriptures to us? And they arose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen. And he's appeared to Simon Peter. And they began to relate their experience on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. See, the rumors were now becoming a reality. Fulfilled promises were removing doubts. It was true. Jesus is alive. It was true for those two people on the road to Emmaus, and now it would be true for the disciples as well. That story that Jesus walked through with them would now be told to the others. Look at verse 36. And when they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a, a spirit, a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Scripture tells us that God initially prevented Cleopas and probably his wife from seeing Jesus. Until they heard what Jesus had described so that they could go and tell the disciples. Now, as they're sharing this story with the disciples, explaining all of Scripture and how it points to the, the person and work of Jesus Christ, apparently, in the midst of this conversation, Jesus appears. He's in the room. They're talking about Him. And when they see Him, they are terrified. They think it's a ghost. Because the last time they saw Jesus... He was dead, dead on a cross, spear in his side, laid in a tomb, dead. And now here he is, alive. Seeing their response, Jesus asked two questions. And like last week, we'll see they're related. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? You see, when we struggle with doubt, it creates trouble in our heart, right? It causes us to be unsettled, un uncomfortable, a little bit disturbed. For example, if you have a teenager who tells you one day that they're going to go to the mall with their friends, but inside your heart you're thinking, I'm not so sure this is true, right? You're starting to doubt whether that's really what's going on. So while they're gone, how do you feel, mom and dad? Comfortable? Unsettled? A little bit disturbed? Well, that's what's happening with the disciples. They have begun to doubt. And so Jesus literally steps into their lives and offers them living proof. To show that he's not a ghost, the scripture tells us that he invites them to touch his body, to see that it is flesh and bone. 
He even goes as far as to sit down and have a meal with them because he wants them to experience his presence with them so that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is in fact alive. That he is risen from the dead just as he promised. Look at verse 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and all throughout the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the world beginning from Jerusalem right here where we are right now. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in this city until you are clothed with that power from on high. See, what did Jesus do? He did the same thing that the angels did at the tomb. He did the same thing that he did to those who were on the road to Emmaus. He reminds them of what he told them. Because promises fulfilled remove doubts. He not only explains how he fulfilled the promises that he made, but he points to all of Scripture and shows how all of Scripture points to him. So that whoever believes will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is living proof that what he said is true. He has conquered death. And that's how we have eternal life. Jesus then tells his disciples, you are my witnesses. You've seen this with your own eyes. Now go and tell the world. Proclaim the good news of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And their message of hope, that truth proclaimed, is why you and I are sitting here today talking about this story. Like we said last week, it's inconceivable. Really, think about it. It's inconceivable that Jesus and a few disciples would change the course of human history. But they did. That little mustard seed continues to produce a harvest of faith to this day. And the more we see his promises fulfilled, the less room we have for doubt. We learn, like the man who was lame, that he is our hope. When we are hopeless. We learn, like the disciples, that he will show us the way when we feel lost. Because he is the way. He is the truth. And he is alive. He alone satisfies what our heart longs for most. And I can only pray that when you and I <coughs> hear those words, there's something that stirs within us like it did for those two on the road to Emmaus. I believe their hearts burned within them because that's what their hearts were longing to hear. 
And I can only pray that the same would be true for you and I. Those two people were just trying to make sense out of life. And those two people are no different than you and I. And they found that Jesus had the answers that they were looking for. You see, the questions that we often wrestle with in life, I think, find their origin in God. He gave us those questions because he wants us to to seek. He wants us to reflect. And ultimately, he wants us to respond because in our searching, God wants to lead us to Christ. He wants us to learn and believe that he has the answer to what our heart's longing for most. See, our greatest sin, for all of us, our greatest sin is when we look for those answers in ourselves. When we're striving in an effort to prove that we have what it takes. When we seek to be satisfied by what we achieve. Or if we don't seem to be making the progress that we would like, we end up depending on what others say. We, we rely on others' opinion instead of seeking those answers for ourselves. But all that does is create doubt. It's like a broken cistern. It looks promising, but it doesn't hold water. Instead of being satisfied, we're unsettled. We're uncomfortable. We're disturbed in our heart. Because that's not where you find the answers. I want to give you a challenge. This week, let me encourage you to write down your questions. Write down the things that confuse you. What are the places in your life where you need answers? I don't know what your practice is, but I routinely journal. And if you were to look at my journal, you would see a lot of question marks. (laughs) Because those are the places that I go in order to take things to the Lord that I'm confused about, that I don't quite understand, and I can't seem to find the answers on my own. So, Lord, will you help me? Lord, will you guide me? And I'm encouraging you to do the very same thing. And once you have those questions, there's one more very important step that you need to take. Listen. Are you listening? Open your Bible. Open your Bible. Take those questions to God's Word and see what it says about them. Don't rely on the opinion of someone else. Don't go try to figure out the answer on your own. See what God says first. Open your Bible. See, I think one of the things that's really wrong in our world today, and really I think in many of our churches today, is that we have a lot of people who are well-informed and biblically illiterate. We read a lot, but we don't reflect. We listen, but we don't obey. We rely on the opinions of others instead of trusting in the promises of God. And as a result, we're confused, conflicted, disturbed, My friend Todd Wagner at Watermark Church in Dallas said this. He said, we, and he's talking about Christians, 
He says, we give lip service to God and then wonder how racism, gender confusion, and infanticide still exist in our world today. I think it's true. It happened this week. If we don't stand strong in God's truth, if we don't seek the answers in his word, then what in the world do we have to offer all the questions that are being asked around us? If our greatest convictions are not the promises of God, we've got nothing to stand on. Terry and I were talking about it <coughs> last night. You may be better than us, <coughs> but we've got to write them out. We've got to stick them on our mirror, and we've got to look at them every day. Because everything that goes on around us wants to prove something different, and we need to see it. We need to believe it, and we need to be reminded over and over again. We need to commit them to memory. We need to share them with each other, because that's the only thing we've got to stand on. And we need to believe that the promises of God that are fulfilled in our life remove the doubts and confusion that we wrestle with. They are the answers that our hearts are looking for most. So my challenge to you is it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to admit confusion. But open your Bible and go find the answers and bring some along with you because I'm sure it will do them good as well. Amen? Promise? Let's pray. Lord, we need that reminder. so much in our world that is wrong and yet you're so right your truth is the answer that our hearts are longing for and all that hatred and confusion and guilt and shame You've given us the answer in forgiveness and grace. The promise that you are with us and you're for us. You'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. Father, may we be convinced that you are alive and well. Present and powerful. That your truth is the answer that our hearts long for most. And may we as your people not strive in pursuing all those promises that you've made. May we guard them in our hearts. May we write them on our mirror. May we share them with each other so that when we struggle, that's where we go. And it is enough. And when our friends come to us and they are worried or confused or struggling in their life, Let's take them to the same place and let's stand there together because the promises of God that have been fulfilled will remove our doubts. That's a promise. May we stand on it. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.